joined by Christopher Mitchell. Christopher is the director of Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. A bit of a mouthful, but uh, it rolls off the tongue once you get used to it. And ILSR is really become quite a, a uh, thinker and player and di dynamo of the like localism, if you, if you had to put a word on it, is why localism matters, how localism is important. And Chris has just, you know, carved out such an incredible role for himself over the last 14, whatever years at Institute for Local Self-Reliance as the director of this Community Broadband Networks program. Chris, it's so great to have you on the broadband.money Ask Me Anything. Thank you. And and I, as I told you to your face, the beard is really working for you. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Chris. I, I Inspiration from so many people, including you. And, uh, you know, Chris, we our journeys have, have uh, we've definitely intersected m multiple times. Uh, I think I started going to Broadband Communities uh, Conference uh, around the same time as you did. And you, you might have hassled me of some stories that we had published on Broadband Breakfast back then. But, um, you know, I, I just... Uh, uh, am, am, am so impressed by everything you've done at um, muninetworks.org as, as the URL goes. Just give us give us a quick, uh, your your take on what brought you, I mean, you're a Minnesotan, you've, you've gone to school uh, in, in Minnesota, what kind of led you to ILSR and to this, this, um, this, this uh, domain of, of knowledge and, 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 act, and action? It's a it's a really good question, and you know it's not like uh, I was hunting it out. Uh, there was a job that was available. The the woman who had started the program and run it for two years had decided that she would like to move on, and so right before I graduated from the University of Minnesota Pub, um, Public Policy School, uh, this job came up, and I had seen what ILSR had been doing. It seemed like the kind of organization that I could work at, and so I applied. Um, they were looking for three things, a person that knew policy, a person that was somewhat technical, and a person that would work for a very low salary. And uh, there was a very small number of people that fit that bill in the entire country. <laughs> so here I am. Well, I mean, you, you literally have become, you're not, I can't say you're a, you're a one man show anymore, because you've got a lot of great, great folks there. Uh, and you, you've built up such an incredible resource. But what, what does it do? What does Muni Networks or community, the Community uh, Broadband Networks Initiative, what do you do? What would you describe as the core functions that you've been, been up to? Uh, I think it has to do with research and telling stories. You know, seeing what is working for communities out there to solve this problem and perhaps these problems around making sure everyone has high quality internet access and they can use it. Uh, I would, every few years, I feel like we change our focus a little bit just based on what is needed. And um, the way that we do that is we're constantly talking with people that are out doing the hard work. And you know, I appreciate that that my team gets a lot of detention. I, I, I mean, attention, not detention. <laughs> but, um, but I, I do think there's a, people out there that are doing tremendous work that people often wouldn't hear of. And the part that we do is just try to make sure people do hear of it. So, um, and then when we hear people saying, well, you know, I really need this thing, or like, you know, there's this other piece that we can't figure out, then we try to figure out, is that something that we could help with? Or, you know, do we know folks, you know, like people like you, people at uh, Benden Institute, people in other nonprofit organizations, people in banks, people in the ISP industry, you know, how can we bring people together to solve problems? Uh, so, you know, right now, like we're kind of making that pivot where we're doing more training than I ever thought we would be doing, right, right. working with people to help them learn how to work in this industry. We'll definitely come back to that and maybe some other pivots. But I got to ask you, do you get asked or accused of being a journalist at times, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think people have, um, you know, are, are a little bit uncomfortable at times with what we are. And and we try to we try to have, uh, I would say, standards that are like that of journalists and reporters. Uh, I think of us as reporters, um, you know, um, it's worth noting. I mean, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is not like pro-municipal network necessarily. We are pro-strong communities. We right. want communities that are economically and politically able to like chart their own course in life. And if we have failing municipal broadband networks, that's not going to help the community. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, like we are seen as being pro-municipal network, but we're very cautious in, in wanting to make sure that communities are making this decision in an informed way and taking it seriously. 
Well, and, you know, as a journalist at, at Broadband Breakfast, uh, and we, of course, we've, we've worked together many, many times in the past. We've cross-published articles and appreciate the things you've done for us, and hopefully we've been able to do some good things for you, too. Uh, what I value about what you do in this context is that you are factually straight. I mean, like you'll, you'll get the news out there and it's, and it's good and accurate information. That's of course a threshold question. Of course, in society today, it's like, so questioned like, Oh, facts, what are those? Right. But, but like what, what, from your perspective, what is the, the value of making sure that, that truthful stories are told about communities? Well, I think the value is, is like, is off the charts because of the lack of local reporting expertise yes. in this work. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we rely on is local reporters who are reporting on this. And it, and it used to be that they might have some telecom background, but now it's more likely that they don't and they're overworked and we don't see as much local reporting on it. When we do, we've learned that we have to be very careful because local reporters can even confuse Wi-Fi and fiber optics. So you've right. seen that in multiple times, even in big markets. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like we we feel like someone needs to be out there providing a record and getting things right and admitting when we get things wrong and trying to just inform people to make sure that um, we have, uh, we're learning the right lessons, right? We don't want, I don't want people to be going off and thinking we need to make this investment because this is exactly how these other people did it. And maybe that's not even how they did it. Right. Well, let's let's go to one important role you play, which is uh, a debunker of uh, astroturf campaigns. I mean, we, we see this repeatedly over and over again. Uh, big telecom companies will fund uh, groups that then uh, go out and say, "Oh, municipal networks bad. You know, we don't want socialism, right? We don't want municipal government uh, owning broadband networks." First off. What what's what's wrong with that, right? I mean, is 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 it wrong or is it not wrong for for municipalities to be quote socialist in their broadband? And secondly, um, you know, wh why do you think this is such a recurring story of of uh, organization after organization kind of coming along and making these arguments as if they were some other entity? Yeah, this is it's complicated in a variety of ways. Like, go for it. Take some time. So, so I mean. The idea of like whether you're socialist or not being a binary, I don't, I don't get it. And um, you know, if we were to say, you know, this, the city that I live in, like almost all cities, builds roads that are available to anyone for free using taxpayer dollars, that's socialism. Does that mean my city is socialist? No, you know, like it's it's just the way we do it because it works, right? Because to do it otherwise would mean that we would have to be stuck with a lower quality of life, less business activity, and that sort of a thing. So. Um, there are socialists who support municipal broadband um, and, and they see it as being something that is important for their ideology. Uh, there are people that are very open market who support municipal broadband because they see it as overcoming market failure. Um, but most of the communities that have done something, I, I, they don't waste their time on that, I don't think. Like they just think yeah. we have a problem and we are going to try to solve it. And um, the way that seems to work for us is to make this investment and choosing one of the many different models around broadband. Um, you know, I think the word socialist comes up largely from people who are just trying to discredit it and right. people who they don't have a real agenda. They don't really want to talk about kind of what socialism is, what markets need generally, uh, you know, and that sort of a thing or the total lack of competition, this sort of monopoly environment uh, where, where most people have one or two choices uh, for a real actual high quality connection. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not a socialist. Um, I, I'm someone who has, um, I, I think a lot about these different issues. And there have been times where I certainly flirted in my life with various socialist ideas. Um, and at this point, like, I feel like I'm very pro-competition, very pro-market in ways that often require smart government investments to deal with the fact that bad government policy in the, in the past has resulted in significant consolidation and a lack of choice. Well, and, and I think that 
I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a scare term out there, but as soon as I threw that, that scare term out there, we have a comment from uh, Corey Hauer uh, saying the same thing. There is a trail of carcasses from failed socialist broadband efforts in Minnesota with defaults, leaving taxpayers on the hook for more than 100 million Lake County RS fiber city of Monticello, your first chance to go after a former ask me anything guest, uh, Chris. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, so of those, like, if you go to uh, RS Fiber, and 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 I was there at the meeting in which they announced that they had um, not achieved the financial level of performance that they wanted to, or more specifically, that they actually had the right amount of revenue, but they um, had, in, because they screwed up their debt, they had much higher costs than were expected on the debt side, that they were going to have to tap into the tax, pro uh, the property tax base. Um, and at that meeting where it was announced, I was really curious what was going to happen. And actually, I had a recorder there and I misused it. Classic issue. Never try to use a new piece of electronics in a live <laughs> environment. So um, I don't have a recording of it. But it was fascinating because people were saying, OK, that sucks. It's disappointing. But when do we get the fiber out? You know, this is so important for the community. And if you if you <laughs> like. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to turn this into like me against Corey Howard running LTD or anything like that. But like, um, what we've seen is that there's not a lot of people who, when given the choice between uh, RS Fiber, whether that's the wireless service or the fiber service, which is run by HBC, which is a wonderful company that has terrific reviews in in southeastern Minnesota. Um, let's just say they're not hurting for market share where they come up against uh, some of the other companies that they compete against. Um, so this is, it's actually the, the best example to talk about, right? So um, municipal broadband does not end up like Chattanooga often, you know, Chattanooga puts in, you know, let's, let, let's take, let's take the spectrum. What's the best run city broadband and what's the worst run city broadband in but, your experience of hundreds yeah. that you've looked at hundreds. Yeah. So the best is, chat well, so the best is difficult. There's a different metrics, right? Chattanooga off the charts, financial success, right? The, because the community had come together years before. You know, Chattanooga isn't a story of fiber. It's a story of a community that has gotten a lot of things right after they were in very difficult circumstances and they came together. And so people that are making large investments in Chattanooga, it's partially because of the fiber, but it's not only because of the fiber, right? So um, Wilson, North Carolina, very difficult situation, much more difficult in economically than Chattanooga, not being risen, being brought up by the tide of other smart investments the city had made necessarily. Although in Wilson's case, they had a history of making smart investments. They um, they have done a wonderful job of trying to make sure that they have three different programs to connect low-income folks, right? Just off the charts, wonderful. Right. Longmont, right. Colorado, like launches and in, into a market where, you know, Comcast and CenturyLink are investing as well. Uh, and, and they hit like 50% penetration in just, a, I think it was four years, five years. Wow off the charts, right? Vermont, Vermont, like the most rural state as measured by people who don't live in a metropolitan area, um, massively embracing municipal broadband, right? Because EC Fiber has done such an amazing job. But they, um, they've certainly had ups and downs. I mean, I remember eight or so years we, we were there and they, they were kind of wrestling with the the, the, the challenges, ha haven't they had challenges? Who, 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 is, who has not risen to the challenge, Chris, mm -hmm. from your experience? Yeah, so so I, let's just, I mean, I, I, I wanted to make the point. There's a bunch of success stories, like really off the charts ones. And then you have your middle cases. And that's more like some of these cities and, um, you know, um, I, I'm not going to pick any. I feel like they might feel like this. They might feel abused if I say any specific names. But there's a number of cities where they're barely paying the debt down. They're making all their cost. They're making all the operating expense payments. Right. And um, and it's hard. Right. It is freaking hard work for uh, the manager of the system uh, because, you know, maybe they have five, 10,000 subs and it is difficult. It's definitely possible to make it work with fewer. But until you get 15, 20, it's it's it doesn't really start to get any easier. Right. So um, that's the middle case. The worst case is places like Donellan, Florida. Donellan, Florida uh, is one that isn't talked about as much. Um, I looked into it because I was kind of curious about it. I hadn't heard about them. All of a sudden they were launching this. And as best I can tell, I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong, someone in Donellan who had some power was like, you know what would make money? Fiber. Let's build a fiber network. And they didn't right. consult with anyone. They, right. just, like, they just put money into it and assumed that they would have the right number of customers. And 
that that it would all work out and they would be able to sign people up. And uh, they sold it at a massive loss, or I don't I don't exactly know what happened there, but it was it was dumb. That is not, I mean, that, that happens in a few places, right? Even if you look at like Ashland, Oregon, Ashland, Oregon is a, one of those common stories you hear about where people are like Ashland, Oregon failed. And uh, in the last year, uh, my colleague, Sean was writing a story about it. I think um, one of us, one of my, Sean, Sean Gonsalves at your, at yeah, your Sean Gonsalves and um, who's just a, you know, one, I mean, my team, boy, they're terrible to work with. Nobody should hire them. Um, nobody, <laughs> Stop it. Don't, don't poach them. <laughs> um, they, and, and there was this, they came up and I was sort of doing a fact check on it because they were like, yeah, like the network's throwing off $500,000 a year. That's helping the city, you know, to, uh, you know, not raise other taxes. It's, it's, it's generating so much wealth. And I was like, no, it doesn't sound like Ashland to me. Ashland is the city where like 12 years ago, Joe Fresnel like had to like make some significant changes to pull it out of the hole that it was in. It was, it had been poorly managed and other city departments were having to help pay for the debt because the network couldn't cover its own debt. Well, since then they've, they've actually turned it around quite a bit. And, right. and that's the thing is that you can fix these mistakes when things go wrong. And there's no better example than Utopia. I'm not going to spend any time on it because your audience knows. Go on and on. Yeah. Utopia well, is like terrific. And and what and what I what I, I would like to pull out of of the utopia example, but they're not alone. They are an open access success story where many uh, different ISPs, internet service providers, are offering service on a a single uh, open platform, a single open network. And and we'll, we'll talk a little more about open access, but let's just close out this kind of criticism point that is both sides of the coin, right? And and we got a question from Peggy Peggy Schaffer, uh, Schaefer, who who has done incredible work in Connect Maine. She asks, how can states and advocates make sure communities are on a level playing field? when it comes to grants and data versus law, large incumbents. Maybe the flip side of that coin is Benjamin Kahn asks, critics of municipal broadband often compare state and community broadband efforts to an athlete who participates as both a referee and a player. So on the level playing field, which is it? Are states, are, are, are cities at a disadvantage or are they at an advantage when it comes to non-city municipal players? It's it's not as easy as just picking one of those. Um, and let me let me just say quickly. I keep looking down. I I am uh, I'm always doing too many things, and um, I'm remodeling uh, some parts of my house. And the windows were supposed to be delivered before 10 a.m. this morning. And as soon as we started, is when they texted me to be like, "It's on the way." So I'm trying to like coordinate with my wife to make sure she knows that these people are going to be showing up. And it's, it's always there's always something with me um so i don't mean to be um you know distracted a little bit but um the um the referee issue is one that i think is totally blown out of context right um in general cities are at a disadvantage relative to large companies right this isn't we're not talking about like a city compared to a local wisp um but like compared to a uh, charter spectrum a comcast there's no city that has an advantage over those companies with the kind of scale that they have, right? I mean, like those companies buy units in the tens of millions. And so they get price discounts, they get the front of the line, they get, they have, they have all kinds of capacity. Their marketing is done at like an incredibly low per unit cost, right? Um, now cities have some advantages uh, around uh, debt in certain ways, not always. Um, but right now, as, as the interest rates are flux, in flux, we may certainly see Cities are able to finance things less than certain other private companies. Um, you know, cities have to operate in the open, uh, whereas private companies get to do things in secret. That's both planning and also making mistakes, right? I know lots of people who are very, I'm blessed by people who are open with me about the businesses that they run right. and they make mistakes all the time. Like, <laughs> like, man, like I'm, you know, like they're not, they don't want to, they don't want to do the front page news that they screwed up this investment and then they fix it. Right. Um, right. Like that's, that's, that's the nature of working in the edge in, in a field like this. So cities do that though. And, it, and like, it can be blown out of proportion. Uh, even networks that are a success may see um, uh, someone who has political ambitions one Wanting to just lie about it in order to try to advance themselves. I mean, I think that's sort of what happened in Sun Prairie in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these, these things are, uh, um, uh, they're hard to compare. Um, and, I, you know, but I, I do want to say that, like, there's also no such thing as the private sector, right? Like a small scrappy company is very different from a large multinational company. 
And a small scrappy company could be run by someone who is duplicitous, who's, who's just basically trying to figure out how to flip that company and sell it before it all implodes. Or it could be run by someone who has a strong dedication to the community that's doing everything they can to try to help their community out. Right. Let's, let's, uh, let, let's make sure we transition into the discussion about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which of course is the large uh, $65 billion funds for broadband, the bulk of them, vast bulk of them going to the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. Two questions on this. The first is, what kind of the question of the day or the week is the the maps and the 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 apparent news I, I i am not willing to accept defeat just yet but many people are saying the fcc has made speed tests redundant in terms of allowing local governments local communities to effectively and independently verify some isps claims this is a question that sarah Lai sterland here at broadband.money asks that's one part I want to ask you about. How is this mapping and uh, rollout process going? And secondly, I want to get your take on the fiber versus wireless. Uh, you're, you're very much associated with kind of fiber is, 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 is important and good, but I know you're not an absolutist. So, so talk to me about where you see the best use of this $42.5 billion when it comes to the technologies deployed. Well, first, do we answer Peggy's question? I feel like we kind of skipped. Well, over. no, go ahead. Finish Peggy's question first. Okay. I mean, I, I would say that like a lot of communities, um, if they're not going to create their own ISP, uh, they're going to not have a real say over the state funds, right? Um, except for they could preference. Hopefully, most states will probably have a local letter of support kind of thing. And so, um, you know, cities need to be paying attention. To that. Not cities so much as rural communities, more likely. Um, but like, rural communities that want to build their own ISPs uh, have to, I think, put together a credible uh, plan because uh, when a state's evaluating it, if, if it doesn't look like a community knows what they're doing with some sort of community-led ISP, then they're not going to be preferenced, even if they get a few extra points here or there for being community-owned. Let's make sure we're fully understanding this and digesting because there's a couple pieces. Peggy asks, how can states and advocates support community applications and data collection? And then Jace Wilson of Broadband Money adds, how can communities and states that tend to ignore them advocate for their proposals? And then Peggy asks another follow-up, which is when grants require community engagement, what evidence of that should grant reviewers look for? So let's let's kind of make sure, sure we've gotten everything in this bundle here. So the first thing is, I hope that NTIA takes this very seriously. And I think there's some signs that they will and, and hold states to the fire to make sure they are doing consultations with local governments as well as tribal governments. Uh, I think that's going to be really important because there's much there's many different needs there. And I think that there should be some mechanism for the states to be not the ones saying, yes, we did our consultations, but actually that there's some kind of checkup or ability for local governments to appeal. Not that one local government could stop an entire state by saying there wasn't a consultation, but if you have a bunch of local governments all saying we weren't consulted, we don't feel like we have an opportunity, you know, there should be some some process for that. And and like so many things, like speed tests especially, you know, a few speed tests don't tell you anything, but like thousands of them do. You see patterns emerging, and that's where um, that's where it's important to know how to use these this sort of data that has to be collected. You know, okay. when it comes down to the uh, the FCC's decisions. I think a number of states are going to be using their own data much more than the FCC data. So, um, so that's let's, let's stop it back up on data. Okay, so so moving to to data, what we're basically talking about, of course, so that everyone knows that, you know, the the Federal Communications Commission is charged with uh, getting an updated map. Not that they haven't had a few years to do this already, and uh, an address level or location by location level address of, of where broadband is and isn't and what levels it is and you kind of the word on the street is well how, how do we how do we test how do we prove when a provider claims oh yeah we've got gigabit fiber there and there's no speed test that comes even close to that and we we had a demonstration of this on a broadband breakfast uh, webcast on wednesday about lots of speed tests not showing anything close to what's claimed. So, so, uh, so, Chris, what, what's what's your take on the FCC's failures and what remedies might be available? Um, I'm I'm at a loss. 
of what to say about the FCC. Um, there's a lot of good people who are trying to do good things there. There is a history of mistakes that were made that have left led a, um, a lot of things to be done. So I don't want to sit here and say that someone's a bad person at the FCC in whatever position. Um, but I feel like there's a reason that a lot of people have lost faith in it. Um, I'm sympathetic to the idea that they don't want to sort through a bunch of speed tests some of which may have been done over a Wi-Fi router that was built 15 years ago, right? Or, and may, may be at the extent of its limit. Like I understand all of that, but the reason the FCC exists is that it's an expert agency, right? Like the whole point is that Congress and others were like, we can't just decide these things. We need someone that knows what they're talking about. And I don't feel like there's a lot of credibility coming from the FCC on that. And I, and I would like to see that restored. Um, so what that means in my mind is continuing to collect data rigorously, um, you know, using robust standards. There's a, there's a whole fight right now about speed tests and the cable industry particularly saying that, that, um, that the, uh, the MLAB NDT test is, uh, is inappropriate. And I would agree, like, if you're trying to like, see, I'm, I'm on a gigabit DOCSIS 3.1 connection. Am I going to, you know, am, is the NDT test going to be the appropriate way to measure that? No, it is not. But if you're like on a DSL connection that's delivering seven megabits and it's claiming 30, that NDT test is the right test to be checking that out and seeing whether or not it works. Uh, so, so like, this is all like super complicated, but this is where we need an agency that takes it seriously and comes out with it. But um, it's not to say it's easy, but like, it's literally the way the FCC exists. Now tell me, did I, I mean, I, I sort of like went off on that rant a little bit, but what redirect me if you want. Well, um, Let's take a slightly different take, take on mapping. What, what's the point of this, Chris? I mean, we've talked about this before. You 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 sometimes have the view, or at least maybe I'm maybe I'm imagining from decades old conversation. What we need is a map showing whether there's fiber, yes or no, right? And then if there's not fiber, let's figure out a plan to get get. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's like it's one it's, it's it would be a good a better way of moving forward. But also, I mean, I'll just like I just got a note from Travis because we saw that a certain company had started building fiber in a certain area. And he had asked me, um, who, is, who, is, who is Travis? Tell us Travis Carter, my um, frequent partner and uh, um, friend of me on, on uh, the connect this webcast that you on do. the connect this webcast, but also in real life. Like Travis and I, like we joke that like I teach him like kind of how government works and he teaches me how ISPs really work from the inside. And um, and Travis and I, I mean, I just it's I, I I love working with him. We disagree on plenty of things, but like, but like he's constantly of the mind of show me test, let's test it and that sort of thing. But anyway, he's he's just making the point to me last night um, after the episode ended that um, not all fiber is the same, right? Like you can have fiber companies that are doing a poor job, much like so in St. Paul, cable Comcast does a pretty good job in my neighborhood, right? I have high reliability. I have decent speeds. A lot of my neighbors probably aren't using it, um, which, which helps. Um, but in other parts of St. Paul, it's bad. Um, in parts of Eastern North Carolina, for instance, and lots of other places, like, I mean, where you've got Cable One, Sudden Link, like some of these, these companies have been famous for just having networks that don't work significant percentages of the time. And, and so like, it's not enough to just focus on the technology. It's a good start, but like some of the cable networks work better than others. And there has to be some way of measuring that. We have like the whole Sam knows system. And, I've, right. and I was pretty frustrated with that, but it would be better to have that and actually using that for reliability data, for testing jitter and other things that are becoming more important as moving from 100 megabits to 500 megabits is less important than having a high, uh, than having a high, uh, a low latency connection, you know, than having a connection that has a, a very con continuous high quality experience. So, um, I, I'm I'm off. So well, and 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 just just so everyone knows, the Sam knows is a is a British company that does tests under the Measuring Broadband America program of the Federal Communications Commission. It's basically a way to get kind of actual uh, tests on boxes that are designated. So I sometimes like in normal speed tests as speed tests in the wild, whereas these measuring broadband America tests that Sam knows is doing and feeding back to the FCC are, are specific, right? And a lot of the, there was, just last weekend, there was the telecommunications policy research conference. I was there. It was a great, great session. There were like six or seven or eight papers on broadband labels or broadband speed tests, right? Because this is such a hot and important topic. And, and I, I don't think we can let this go, Chris. I mean, like, I don't think that, that the FCC's, you know, 
whatever, you know, failures, okay, not, not doing. But the reason that we need mapping is because we don't trust local communities to know what they need, right? And there's both good and bad reasons for that, right? Because you and I both can name communities where we would say, I absolutely trust this community. The, the map looks like they have good data. You know, there's a, every address is served by this company. That company claims to offer this level of service. And the map is not going to capture what's going on there. But there's actually probably, you and I would probably still agree, more communities where they just don't have that level of sophistication. But ultimately, I mean, you know, you're talking to someone from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. The mapping is always going to be flawed, especially as long as we're not collecting pricing data attached to it. Um, and so it's, it's really a question of kind of what are we specifically trying to do? And, um, and it, you know, is this good enough together? It's not going to be great. What we need is communities that take this seriously, right? If you go into a public works department and you ask them the difference between a blacktop road and a, and a concrete road, and they can't tell you, something's gone horribly wrong, right? But like local governments haven't yet developed that sophistication around broadband. I think they will over time. Well, and and this, this is kind of the way I, I was led to this, Chris, is, is you know, I'm obviously the, the furthest thing from a socialist. I mean, we, we haven't had many one-on-one -on -one political talks, but, but I'm, I'm, you know, the opposite of that, right? And yet, and yet the argument that I hear these astrotruth groups make is, is so absurd because here's the, here's the bottom line. The cities are the custodians of their rights of way. They need to be, they must be, right? We, we have a public good, it's called roads. I mean, you made the point, right? We're not gonna have a competing networks of roads. So because you have that underlying infrastructure that's a public uh, or, or even just the, the right of way, that doesn't mean the city needs to own everything, right? And this is kind of where Utopia Fiber and Ammon, Utah and, and others, Ammon, Idaho, excuse me, come in, right? Which is that there's, there's a, a thing called open access where there's different tiers and one tier or one layer can own can be the, the ownership layer, right? The, the city can own it, right? And Detroit is, is, as I understand it, kind of on this pathway, I'd love for you to uh, add a little more, where the city would, would be the owner, but then someone else and another private entity would operate it, and then still other entities offer service. So, so let's talk a little bit about open access and maybe some of the appealing or also the drawbacks of open access as a broadband uh, method. Yes. Open access, I think, is terrific. Uh, you know, as you know, and people that follow me will probably know, I I tend to really support open access, um, not to the exclusion of other models. I fundamentally believe that there are correct models for some places, and in some places, uh, you know, hoping for the best from an incumbent is possibly the best model if a local government has a history of corruption. Um, so, like, there's all kinds of different models. Open access is one that I desperately want to see continue to grow because I love the internet and I really, so let's just for a second, go back. Like I was, I was blessed in that my father went back to college when I was uh, young. And, um, and so he got into computers at the right time in the eighties and nineties. And um, I grew up with a computer uh, in a way that most kids, especially kids in my circumstance did not. And I happened to get on the internet in the early 90s. Uh, you know, I was on Prodigy in like the late 80s or early 90s even. And, um, and I had a sense of this and I, I could always do what I wanted to do, right? I had websites with dumb 15 year old opinions, right? Like, and, and a permissionless innovation is something that I've always cherished. And when I look around, I think it's really great. And I worry even, you know, I'll, I'll say that, you know, whether you're talking about like a utility mindset, like Cedar Falls, Longmont, Colorado, Chattanooga, brilliant networks that are terrific and absolutely willing to work with local entrepreneurs. But at the same time, those entrepreneurs have to go there and, and kind of present their case to them and they're gonna get a fair hearing. But the idea that you can go to Ammon, Idaho in some other places in time, you know, to be able to engage in like using the, um, the software-defined networking and to try a new experiment, that's just so important, I think. We yeah. need to have, we need to have millions, ideally tens of millions of Americans in thriving areas that have open access to kind of see what we can do with networks. Maybe a lot of those ideas won't work out, but I think we, we don't wanna foreclose that path because we have too, much, too many networks being owned by people that are nervous about change and don't see a value in having uh, you know, this permissionless environment. So, okay. so I see open access, it's not about lowering the price, it's a nice side effect. The idea that we can have innovation in different ways, I think is really important. 
Well, 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 so how how do you see this this playing out with with the bead funding, right? What what changes could we see in the American telecommunications landscape because of bead, right? And what can what can communities, cities do to be best positioned to take advantage of bead funds? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear, like bead is going to like on the order of 10 million US households, right? Like um like 42 and a half billion dollars is mostly gonna go to rural areas. Um, not just rural areas, but rural areas where AT&T and CenturyLink and Frontier already got billions of dollars to improve their networks there. And they kind of forgot to do it over the six or seven years they were supposed to do it. So we're, we're putting more money into those areas. But the, this money is not going you know, largely to Detroit, right? Detroit is using rescue plan funds, um, a different bucket of money, which is important. And Congress really did a great job of, of doing that. The Department of the Treasury got those rules right to enable this. But Beads mostly not going to cities where there's a tremendous need, both for low income and I think there's potential for, for the innovation where open access would be very interesting to see in, in larger cities. Um, not to say anything about West Valley, you know, which I know like has uh, is, is probably the largest uh, municipal open access network. Um, you know, so, so I just I feel like um, when it comes to bead, we have to remember the Biden administration keeps using this talking point, Internet for all. And, and the people there, they truly believe that they want to get there. Bead is not that vehicle. Bead okay. is about connecting the 10 million households that were screwed by the big telephone companies. All right. Well, that's that's a downer. But 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 what what can what will happen in, in the marketplace? Right. I mean, could open access get a new life from from this or not? Right. Or 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 will there be new um opportunities for 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 rural co-ops right i mean that's uh, electric co-op awesome. and there are some rural co-ops and rural applications that will be open access i don't know that we'll have 100,000 200,000 homes that are connected to open access because of bead i mean it, it could be and that would be a substantial mm -hmm. you know growth of of open access homes um right. But I think, you know, the, the answer is, is that cities need to prioritize this, not in a way that you need, you know, I was talking with people from Baltimore last night um, uh, in the Digital Equity Learning Lab, which is an amazing program for helping educate people about what their communities could do around broadband. And, and the question was, you know, what would it cost to build everywhere in Baltimore? What more than Baltimore is going to willing, more than able or willing to put into it? And so the question is, you know, what can you do? And I, and I feel like, you know, this has been a candid conversation, so I'll just keep saying things that I've said more quietly and been less public about. I'm deeply disappointed we didn't do more in Seattle um, in terms of the community broadband movement. I felt like there was a push in Seattle to do citywide municipal fiber. And I respect that that was what people that were leading that push in Seattle wanted to do. I think there was a real opportunity there to have said, let's spend 10 or $30 million over the period of like one to three years and, and really have an, an interesting connection focused on the lowest income neighborhoods that have been left behind. I felt like that's the level of support you could have shaken loose from Seattle. They chose not to do that. They chose to try to get, you know, on the order of many hundreds of millions of dollars from municipal broadband. And I think that was unrealistic, but open access can grow. And one of the things I love about open access is that you can grow it incrementally. Right. Let, let me let me I'm going to shake one more point on this before we move to some others, which is uh, this this being bead and, and, and bead funding for for areas that might be more, quote, urban, suburban fringe. I mean, Alan Davidson, in the interview that that we did together in, uh, in in Keystone, Colorado, he emphasized how important it is to NTIA that there is 100 by 20 access and that it's affordable. Right. I mean, isn't there some way to show, uh, you know, again, even if the FCC is not going to pay attention, the states may pay attention. The states may have the ability, the state broadband offices to say, well, we want it, We want some of this money to go to this area like in this part of Denver or this part of Washington that has really bad results in our actual speed results. And the, and I mean, do, do, do you see any hope for that or what, what are our, our best, what is the best way to get that result? I think it varies state by state. Um, yeah. You know, there's, for instance, you know, I think Maryland, Maryland's governor um, has, um, is a totally reasonable person. Uh, I think we, we would all agree that there are some unreasonable people out there running different states. And um, at the same time, that, that state is not gonna prioritize Baltimore, even though there's really important things that could be done and the federal government has put enough money in 
that the state could really make a big difference in, in Baltimore or Annapolis, some of the places, but, but there's political dynamics in all of these places. Um, yeah. You know, in my own Minnesota, we just see a freaking $9 billion surplus and, and broadband super important, except maybe we won't spend very much of that on that. We'd rather argue about it, wait for the election to pass. And I mean, this is, this is the reality of what happens. Right. And, um, and so when it comes to this issue, like what I see happening is, a potential future is there's this talk about how we're putting all this money into broadband, you know, uh, on the order of 60, 70 billion dollars in the broadband infrastructure when you total up the CPF and all the different stuff, you know, um, and there's a sense of we're really going to fix broadband. We're putting all this money into it. And right. yes, for people that are living, you know, in exurbs and in the more rural areas, I think they're going to see dramatic differences. But I think most voters in, in, the ne- in the next presidential administration are going to be like, how come my prices have gone up twice? Mm-hmm. I don't see any new providers really being available here. Yeah. And, and the question is, is, is what happens then? Is it, um, is it less of an issue because we don't have dramatic stories about, uh, about rural families um, you know, not having access? We're still going to have the kids at the Taco Bell, right? That's going to keep happening because we haven't really dealt with that in any kind of systematic way. So there might be in different areas, uh, political pressure to actually try to resolve that. And as long as we have people like Josh Edmonds who are stepping up and, and building trust in the community and then in making smart investments to say, we're going we're gonna to try and do this in a way that, that really doesn't just do the bare minimum, but actually provides unique benefits to populations. Then in this case, an open access fiber network in you know, Hope Village in Detroit. Um, that's going to be a big difference. So um, there's a question from Dan Grossman, which I think is a really good one. Uh, Many incumbents have seen the error of their ways in the past couple of years and are committed, for real, says Dan, to building fiber to the home. This time, it is more than just talk. They know that their continued existence depends on it. They have recapitalized by committing to investors. They will build out fiber to the home and get good ROI. Why, um, why should communities not consider these kind of partnerships with an incumbent is Dan's question. Well, not only are cities considering them, cities are giving them tremendous amounts of money, right? There's a telecompetitor, I think, had an article about Windstream and Frontier have captured $200 million uh, for upgrades. I mean, these are companies that recently came out of bankruptcy. Frontier has been fined by just about every state it's operated in. I mean, it's been sued. It's just... As a company, I can't imagine one that you trust less, and yet they still keep racking in all of this money, um, you know, from from uh, state, federal, and local partners, um, you know, public entities that that give them the money. Um, so, so it's on the table, and I wouldn't say that it should be off the table. But if I'm in a community, I would it would be a very hard decision to say yes. Let's use our hard-earned taxpayer dollars you know, to give more money to AT&T or even to Comcast, a company that I'm on the record as saying operates pretty well, particularly in comparison to its rivals in the cable industry. Um, But, you know, they're doing a $10 billion stock buyback. You're telling me that we should be giving taxpayer dollars that are scarce to companies that that's basically you're telling their shareholders they don't have any productive use of investment. So they're just going to buy shares back with their billions of dollars in profit. I I think that's the sign of how broken the system is. Right. Well, AT&T, Frontier, these companies have a history of failing to meet community needs. And people get so caught up in the fiber and saying, yeah, all we need is fiber. Well, I don't know. If I had a choice in North Carolina between open broadband fixed wireless and fiber mm-hmm. from AT&T, I'd be, I'd be really you know, checking it out. Yeah. And, I mean, and I think AT&T fiber gets a pretty good mark you know, a pretty good um, marketplace review. But this well, is a company that will sell your data at the first opportunity. It's a company that's going to raise your bill every chance it gets. You know, we're in a unique place right now where Wall Street is pouring money in private equity into fiber networks. And we're going to, it's going to look like there's a lot of competition. And we're going to look like AT&T and these companies are going to be more competitive and have to like, and have to deal in a more competitive environment. But it's a mirage. It's all going to get sorted back into monopolies. There's going to be a, you know, a, a year or two where we see massive consolidation again, and it's all going to disappear unless there's some sort of local stake in it. All right. So, so, so let's get at that. What's, what's the way to avoid that bad result you've just laid out? What's the I local think- engagement? Having, uh, so it, it's not just owning it, that's, that is a preferable approach. I mean, you don't necessarily have to operate it, but there's other situations where, um, you know, like in places, so 
there's um, in New Hampshire and Maine consolidated and an incumbent that was hated, um, you know, is now a trusted partner um, among some of these communities and the communities own the network as a um, and consolidated basically Mesa debt payments on. it. So um, there are a, um, a variety of approaches. A different one would be a community that has a right of first refusal. So yeah, no worries, I get distracted too. Um, a community that has a right of first refusal um, in uh, in terms of- I just wanted some light back on. Yeah, uh, in terms of a change of ownership. So communities might say, I want a partner. I don't even want to own it. I want this partner to own it. And two years later, that partner gets bought by someone. Well, do you have, a, are you at the, having a seat at the table for that discussion? You can set up a contract that does. You see to be the Urbana-Champagne folks okay. that you know. No, I, was, I was about to ask for specific examples and you're giving me one. You see to be, what did they do in this contract, so to speak? They had a right of first refusal, I believe, to um, to get the access, to get the, um, the um to, own, to, to buy the oh, network if there's going to be network if, it, if it's being sold uh, yeah. or and even in that case they didn't they were like hey we don't want to buy it and but they still had a seat at the table because they had a stake right and so mm -hmm. so like there's contractual things like that that can be done um you know, if you're contracting with someone like this has come up with certain wireless providers who i fear are overstating what the technology can do and wireless technology does keep getting better we kind of skipped over the fiber wireless yeah yeah no we will let, let, we'll come back to that too but, just but so if you're working with a company that you feel like you may not have the faith that like they don't have a track record like CTC in Minnesota does. CTC has worked with tons of communities. It's a co-op. They're, they're trusted. Right. But you have someone you think these people might do a good job. You want to have a performance based contract where it says, all right, you're agreeing that in year two, you will be passing this number of homes with this level of speed. And if you are not doing that, then you will either forfeit the money or you won't get the money or there's some penalty. Right. You don't want to you want to make sure that this is specific. So, hey, windows were delivered. I just got the text. I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> hey, windows arriving. Well, my last question this is actually from Ben Kahn. Short of launching their own municipal broadband efforts, what are some of the most effective actions communities can take? And you kind of answered this in terms of infrastructure, but he then asks to bridge the digital divide in their area. Which programs have you observed the greatest um, impact uh, for Again, not just infrastructure, but like the the application, the use, the digital equity. What are your some of your thoughts on that? Chris? So I, I'll say that I think this is tremendously important, and I have not put as much time into it because I think the National Digital Inclusion Alliance does a really great job. And if they weren't there, I feel like we would have made it a bigger priority. So I don't have as many examples out of the gate. But what we see is the need to build trust. So. There are people, um, let's say, let's talk about the lower 10% of income folks who may not even have an income at that level, but the people who are the most hard up, largely in cities, but this happens in rural areas too. There are places that they go and they trust. It might be a food shelf. It might be, um, you know, a social services place. It might be a faith group. Um, those are the entities that need to be involved in this, right? They need to be involved in having the digital trainings and doing device distribution and things like that. We need to engage them, not just so they could do an introduction, but so that they can make this a part of the services. Uh, we need to basically have trust in order to get this accomplished. And this isn't a thing where, all right, we got the devices out and we did two years of trainings, we're done. There needs to be groups that are continuing to work on this not because the problem is going to get worse every year. It's going to get easier because of as people grow up and digital natives and whatnot, but it's still an ongoing issue. So we need communities to take it seriously, to form a group, you know, or to have existing groups that take this on as a part of their mission and do it and not saying, all right, you know, like, like um, AARP, you know, is going to handle it. AARP is doing a tremendous job. Uh, we work with them regularly. They have courses, um, you know, the, uh, the this uh, um, senior planet, um, um, I'm, I'm missing, I'm, I didn't prepare for that. So um, right. they have a variety of courses. They're terrific. And like, they, but they need to be plugged into local um, groups that are reaching a different part of the community. Like there's people out there who are doing this. This is more about building connections now than it is like trying to figure out a new curriculum. So we've got a little more than 10 minutes. I want to make sure to get three areas and we can handle in any order you want. I want to talk about the tribal broadband boot camp that you've been doing. I want to talk about um, uh, wireless and fiber. You know, we chat around this, but let's kind of come back to this. And we got a really great question from Anoop. Uh, Nagendra, I hope I have that name right. He's with Connectivity Capital. And he uh, says, 
Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, and he wants to focus on emerging markets. We haven't seen municipal broadband really take off in Africa or Asia and community networks are struggling to scale beyond around 100 households. How do you envision broadband infrastructure gets built for the rest of the world? So let's tackle, tackle those three tribal, um, wireless fiber and global and, and uh, uh, global broadband. Let's do global first because I, I have the less knowledge about this. I mean, there's there's groups like APC um, and, and others that work in Africa and uh, around the world on this issue. South Africa has community networks that are uh, somewhat different. Brazil has some community networks, but he's right. The United States and Sweden have the vast majority of municipal networks. And in part, it's a, it's a, it's a legal structure. Not every every country, and in fact, I think most countries don't live, have the level of autonomy that states and cities do from the federal government. Uh, and also, you know, it may not make sense in places that are smaller and um, and are more homogenous than the United States are. So, I feel like what is needed is locally rooted companies, and we need to make sure that that the political and legal systems do not disadvantage local community networks. And so, you know, what that means is like networks that are operating on the scale of 50 to 100,000 users, probably. As you get to a million users, it's much harder to actually care about the communities you're serving, I think. So scale is a major issue. And I think we should be prioritizing overlapping networks that are small enough that they're responsive to local needs, which is a little bit of a kumbaya. I don't know how you do that in different places. Right. So. All right. Well, so so tell us about training. You mentioned how ILSR has reinvented itself several times. Uh, would you consider the training you've been doing and the, the Tribal Broadband Boot Camp part of that? Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Sure. And I should say this is from the Oregon Tribal Broadband Boot Camp. The University of Oregon uh, hosted a, a wonderful event. Uh, we had uh, a lot of people that came out. These are have uh, been three day events, three hard day events. Uh, we did the first one, uh, we called it a tribal wireless boot camp in, in 2021. And uh, the focus is bringing people on from tribal lands who are interested in building their own networks. And in three days, we can't give people a certification, you know, even if even if I was 10 times better at, at what we do, you know, and the, the instructors that we have, there's so much you can do. So it's focused on helping people become less intimidated, uh, demystifying the technology. And so we call it the Tribal Broadband Bootcamp now because although we started with a focus on 2.5 gigahertz because of all the hard work that was done to make sure those licenses were available to many in Indian country. Um, and some people were really focused on that. And so in a, in a subsequent one, we had people that had fiber expertise come in and we did fusion splicing and, um, and talked a lot about how one goes about it, where you get more information, what are the key things you have to worry about. And a number of people were like, I thought fiber was like super difficult and would not would be beyond our skill set. But I'm learning that, you know, with the right teachers and, and the right, you know, sort of like in starting in the right direction, we can do it. And so some of the people that we'd worked with are now building fiber optic networks and usually hybrid fiber optic and wireless networks. So our goal is to basically say this stuff is not impossible to learn, right? You need to know the right people. People like Travis, who I have yet to get to one of these events, but has done some virtual presentations to say, yeah, it can be hard and it can be easy once you get the hang of it. But like, if you take it seriously, you can learn it. And that's what we are focused on. And that's both uh, for people who are doing technical work, people who are doing administrative work, um, but basically saying, here's a bunch of experts we're gonna we're gonna be very uh, we're gonna be very humble and like and humble is not the right word but it's an open environment where anyone right. can ask any question and we're not anyone with an, anyone that comes in and says I know how to do everything right and everyone else is a fool right they get kicked out and that's where it's nice that Matt Rantanen who I work closely with right. is for people who don't know him just do a Google image search on Matt Rantanen and you'll see <laughs> that it's very easy for us to set the cultural tone of like we're not gonna take any crap from people. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had the most amazing groups of people come together and everyone has something to contribute. Everyone learns something. And it's just been a, a really magical experience. And I feel totally, again, blessed by funders that have stepped up, uh, you know, Schmidt Futures, um, Google, actually, uh, other funders um, that have stepped up, for, you know, philanthropy, even some private companies who have given money to support one thing. And then that money got redirected to us. Uh, you know, that might have been surprised that, you know, that I was involved in something they funded. Like, I'm just, it's one of those things that like, even people who disagree with me and may not like me, 
they might say, you know what, this tribal broadband bootcamp thing, it's a piece of the solution and we're not gonna, you know, we wanna help support it. So that's been terrific. Well, and that's a great pivot to the wireless versus fiber question. I mean, look, and look, uh, you know, I, I but my motto, my personal motto is better broadband, better lives, right? You've heard that a million times, Chris. And 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 to me, that's really just a way of saying, yes, we need better, higher capacity internet, but we also need like it to be useful for our people, right? And there are some situations where you need wireless, right? I mean, what talk talk about this fiber versus wireless and and what's the future of this? in my opinion, very vibrant industry of wireless internet service providers, if just they could get out of their own way and decide they're gonna build fiber in those places that it makes sense to do so. Hey, one of the things I love about wireless is that you can do it at small scale. And I think that people that wanna do that uh, should be able to do it, right? Like, I don't wanna dismiss those efforts. I think that uh, there's certain people who, you know, they're not gonna, they don't wanna run a hundred person operation and they think they can do a good job with that technology, they can do that. It's hard to run a fiber network to 50 people, right? Although there's a couple of examples. Um, so uh, wireless is important for a variety of reasons. And um, one is, and I feel like this is one of the things people never listen to me on, but we need overlapping networks. We don't need one network to rule them all. We need overlapping networks for a variety of reasons, from redundancy, for political reasons, to there's all kinds of different reasons that we want to have overlapping networks rather than some sort of like, you know, planning and engineering genius of like, we're just going to have one fiber network and it's going to do everything for everyone. I don't, I don't like that idea. Right. The thing about wireless is that when the pandemic hit, you know, if, if we had said, you know what we need to do, we need to like build fiber as rapidly as possible. Now, far Texas, which is rolling out to 70,000 people fiber to the home in, in like 18 months has kind of blown my mind. So like, but that doesn't happen very many places There's special circumstances there. Um, if we had said we're going to do fiber to a bunch of places when the pandemic hit, there'd be a bunch of people still waiting for fiber. It takes time to deploy. Whereas we we're able to deploy wireless networks. We weren't able to deploy wireless connectivity inside the home in many cases, but lots of communities came together and like Providence built a pretty cool network that rapidly could deliver health related services to people, you know, um, in, in, in different areas of the most hard hit part of, uh, of Providence in Rhode Island. And, and so wireless can do that. Uh, there are places where wireless um, may be uh, less costly than rural, although I keep hearing these these reductive analogies that I don't think are accurate. Um, you know, I'm I'm curious to see what we can do in the longer term with delivering high quality speeds. Uh, sorry, not high quality speeds. I want to say not speeds. High quality <laughs> performance that involves you know good speeds, but also reliability, 24 hours a day. Um, out into rural areas, I'm not convinced that we have a lot of evidence that you can do that. Yes, you can do that to two homes. Can you do that to every home in the right. area is, is a big question. Uh, and so I don't want to foreclose that. I would say seven or eight years ago, I was pretty smart and I knew that wireless, you know, was not going to be able to do a lot of this stuff. But, you know, we're constantly reevaluating. It's a yeah. running joke uh, that we're going through. Tirana is uh, is up on Travis's tower in, in, in um, a part of Minneapolis or the suburb of Minneapolis. And, and you know, I taking that evidence seriously from what I hear from people about Tirana. Uh, at the same time, like it's not going to solve all the problems. So fiber optics brings the opportunity to have that low recurring cost. And so this is something we talk about with the tribes particularly, where don't just look at what can get the job done fastest. Don't look at what's the cheapest to build, but particularly for tribes where you have a very like um, a very challenged community in terms of resources, you know, what is going to be sustainable over the long term? And a wireless network may turn out to be have too high operating costs to work over five or 10 or 15 years. On the other hand, wireless could be great to say, we're going to build wireless today. We're going to get people a connection. Over the next four years, we're going to see what kind of models we can develop to build fiber out to some of those folks. And we're going to do the next generation of wireless for those we can't reach. Fine. That's great. Let's do it that way. Yeah. Well, our hour has sped by. Before we go, though, I've got one final question for you. And it involves you tilting your camera or your, your, your view <laughs> upwards here. Uh, sure. So these are some of Chris's uh, photographs. Um, tell us a little bit about your photography business, your passion for photography, and how it relates to broadband, Chris. I mean, the relation to broadband is not very, very great. It's, it's so bad. I'm so compartmentalized in my life. 
um, that um, I went to an event yesterday. My organization was hosting a different part of ILSR and I didn't even think to bring my camera. And so I called my wife and asked her to bring it to me so I could take some photos of it because in my mind, like I'm doing one job or the other job. Before I went to grad school, I started a sports photography company. Um, I work for colleges and universities, as well as uh, youth sports teams, mostly the occasional other clients. Uh, I haven't done a wedding in years, and I hope I can keep that up. Um, and, uh, and I just love sports photography. I like getting out there, and I have these long relationships with clients. And I've shot national championships. I've uh, shot some professional you know, NFL games and other professional games. That's not my favorite thing to do. I prefer, I really love division three sports. Uh, I love the Gophers. Um, so I was actually out this morning shooting cross country for them. What's your favorite sport to take pictures of, oh, Chris? Time of the year. So soccer is my favorite hands down, but there's nothing as much fun on like an April day on a blue sky, you know, shooting baseball. Um, women's volleyball, the sort of six V six volleyball yeah, I shot the national championship for that for Stanford, and that may have been the best sporting experience of my life. Uh, I mean, it's just it's an amazing environment where you have the crowds coming out. Um, women's softball has the best cheers and just like enthusiasm from the dugouts. And like if you have a game that's going to extra innings, it's just, uh, you know, your heart's beating. It's it's thrilling. Um, you know, I love men's college basketball, like particularly I like women, the women's game too, but the men's game getting above the rim and just trying to get those photos. It's, uh, it's terrific. Uh, I'm not a Minnesota native. I've been here long enough. I'm, I'm figuring out hockey, but like <laughs> everyone else is a better hockey photographer than I am. So, yeah, um, I just thought I'm going to shoot a regatta for the first time next weekend. Oh, cool. so, yeah. yeah. Well, again, it's our time is fed by, uh, we, we will have our next, um, ask me anything, uh, two weeks from now with Deborah Simpierre, who I know, you know, uh, Chris, Wonderful. Uh, of uh, Aletha, um, Althea. Uh, Althea, boy, I'm 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 flubbing up my names today. But uh, keep keep uh, keep watching and make sure to join the broadband.money community. It's free. Go to discuss.broadband.money and you can find a wealth of resources, including ask many things such as the one we've just concluded, but much much more that will help you in putting together your application for the uh, IIJA programs. On behalf of um, Chris Mitchell. Uh, I'm Drew Clark with Broadband Breakfast. We'll see you next time.